If you have your Bibles, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21 and verse number 9 as we continue our conversation on heaven. Do you look forward to, do you anticipate heaven and all that it holds for us? There are times when you look around and see such chaos and confusion, conflict reigning in the world and long for the perfect peace that heaven affords the believer. Maybe you look around in your own life personally. Maybe it's more immediate to you. There's dysfunction and discord within your family or among your friends. Maybe you work in a somewhat hostile work environment and you long on a daily basis for the promised peace of heaven. Maybe you from time to time succumb to the influence of your social media feed or the 24-hour news cycle and you're frustrated with all the absence of harmony and the constant tensions that seem to, seem to exist in the world today and especially in our country and you long for the unity and the togetherness that heaven affords the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you are bumping elbows with people who have outright defied God in certain areas of their life and would openly profess their unbelief. And you long for a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you're wrestling with sin, sin sick, addicted, Maybe you're here this morning under the weight of the consequences of your own sin and you long for a day when all is made right, when sin and sorrow are no more, when the consequences of your sin fully have been washed away in the crimson blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the tendency for us is to long for heaven when things are at their worst. When do we talk about heaven? In the American church, we've relegated heavenly conversation almost exclusively to times of loss. When someone dies, we think about heaven. When something tragic happens, we think about heaven, but scarcely any other time. What I think John is doing in Revelation 21 and 22 is holding up a, a picture of heaven which is so grand, which is so glorious, that it has the effect of creating anticipation and expectation and optimism for what the future holds, even in the best of times. When it's dark, we look toward some light, but the light that John holds up is so profoundly powerful that it cuts through even the, the various lights that we may enjoy within our personal life. Heaven is what awaits us, and our delight this morning is to give deeper consideration as to what it holds for us by faith in Christ. Revelation 21 and verse 9, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. The Bible says, then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. And the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 
Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the city wall had twelve foundations. And the twelve names of the Lamb's twelve apostles were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I didn't see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. He showed me the river of living water sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the broad street of the city, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist, and the people will not need lamplight or sunlight, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Sort of spoil the surprise of our passage last week by noting that the new Jerusalem is not primarily about a place. It's not about a geographic location or an actual literal city, although that is at least in part in view. It's not primarily about a place. This is about a people. And all the beauty, all the glory that is assigned to this metaphor, which is the city, is a description of the saints of God who assembled together with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 9, John says, One of the seven angels came and spoke with me and said, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Did you catch it? Come, and I'll show you the, the bride the wife of the lamb. And then he takes John to see the city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. 
Dear brothers, you and I, by faith in Jesus, are the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. God has adorned us. He has arrayed us in his glory, in the kingdom which is to come, in the new city, in the new heaven, in the new earth. All of these spectacular elements, these elaborate descriptions of the beauty that adorns the city are adornments. They are descriptions that are assigned to the community of faith. Those who have believed are described in such beautiful and spectacular terms. Verse 11 continues noting, her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. That's you. That's us. That, that's the entire encampment of those who have believed on Jesus. Her radiance like precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. We're reading Revelation 21, the way we've been reading the book of Revelation all along, which is symbolically. And we're reading Revelation symbolically because Revelation 1-1 tells us to. John was given this vision, it was to signify certain things, to tell a message, to communicate a message in symbols and in imagery. Some of the imagery you'll find in Revelation 21, frankly, if I could say this with reference, doesn't even make sense. Here we, here we have this radiant stone, jasper stone, bright as crystal. Jasper is not bright like crystal. Later we have a city comprised of gold, the purest gold, like glass. Even the purest gold is opaque. You can't see through it. It's not like glass. I don't say this to undermine or to marginalize the significance of what John is describing, but to highlight the earnestness with which John is grasping for the grandest references he can find to say heaven exceeds our comprehension and exceeds our expectation in terms of the glory that is showered upon the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 12, the city here is said to have a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. I don't entirely understand this phenomenon, but in ancient culture, to have three gates was sort of a big deal. I suppose if there's a point of reference in our cultural context, it would be like buying a house with three bathrooms. If you have a house with two bathrooms, that's important, right? I mean, if you have family, if you have children, or maybe if you just have a wife, two bathrooms can be an important feature in your family home. But to have that third bathroom means you have one you can always keep clean in case company comes unexpectedly. It's sort of a, a, a novel feature in your home. In the same way, a three-gate city is sort of a big deal. If you live in a three-gate city, it's sort of a, a, a status thing. It's a big deal. There's 
access. It would indicate that there's trade, there's commerce, there's market within your city. There's, there's coming and going, there's import, there's export. There's a certain prestige about your hometown. Here we have not just a three-gate city, but a city with three gates on each of its four walls, three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the west. The city is being described in ideal terms. It is the perfect city. It is the perfect place in a perfect heaven, a perfect earth for a perfect people made perfect by the shed blood of Jesus. There are said to be 12 gates, angels posted at the gates, and on the gates are the names of the 12 tribal heads of Israel. Go down to verse 14. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundations. So you got 12 gates that have the 12 tribes of Israel, then you got 12 foundations that has the 12 names of of Jesus' apostles or disciples. Now, I can remember being a fairly new believer and working through this passage and thinking, I wonder which of the 12 tribal heads of Israel are on the gates. You realize that those lists can vary somewhat. Sometimes you have the inclusion of the sons of Joseph. Someone else drops out, usually Dan for Dan's idolatry. There can be movement of a variety of kinds within the lists of the 12 tribal heads of Israel. Israel, And I wonder which of those disciples or apostles had their names on the 12 foundations of this city. Is Judas a part of that? Do we have Matthias as the replacement? Does the apostle Paul find his name in that list somewhere? And here's what I'll tell you. If that is the question that you are asking of this passage, you are missing John's intent in the text. The point is to say is the names of those 12 tribal heads of Israel are on the gates and the names of those 12 apostles are on the foundation. The point is to, to meld together what God did among the people of Israel under the old covenant, what God is now doing among Gentile peoples under the new covenant. This is a real concern for John in Revelation 21, to press at the extent to which People of every tongue and tribe and people are being drawn together in perfect unity around the worship of the Lamb and the Almighty eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. Twelve apostles are assigned to the twelve foundations. But look down to verse number 19. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, and then we have this listing of stones. Now, we'll see this in just a moment. But the stones themselves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So this new city is being built upon the foundation of the testimony of the apostles. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners, Paul would say, of whom I am chief. That God is seeking and saving to the uttermost, even among the Gentile peoples of the world. But that testimony, that foundation is decorated by, it is adorned by the jewels that represent the nation of Israel. This is one of a variety of ways that John is pressing at this union that exists between Israel and the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile have in reality been brought together in perfection in the new heaven and the new earth. We might say that in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, 
we finally receive in full what we enjoy merely partially in the here and now. We have been saved by grace through faith. But don't you experience on a constant basis that in the face of the willingness of the Spirit, the flesh ever seeks its own indulgence? Haven't we been freed from sin? Indeed, we have. But don't you experience the constant onslaught of temptation and wrestlings against sin? So too, God has granted unity, has torn down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. But don't we experience on an almost constant basis the friction and the tension that exists when cultures and ethnicities begin to bump into one another? What we enjoy in part now, we will enjoy in full in the new heaven and the new earth. Paul speaks to this union which has been created among Jew and Gentile in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ, he says, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. God has brought us together as people of every tongue and tribe and nation. But in the new heaven and the new earth, that union is powerfully perfected. By the way, that union begun in part in us is a union we ought to seek to pursue. I am thoroughly convinced that we are being provoked in social media and in the news cycle and various other ways within our culture to fixate on the various frictions and tensions that can exist when ethnicities and cultures begin to bump into one another. Those are highlighted, given emphasis in social media and in the news cycle, in my estimation, to foster further division among us. But if there has ever been a place in this world where people ought to be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. It is the church of Jesus Christ. In spite of the various points of tension and friction that can exist when people of every tongue and tribe and nation begin to bump into one another, the kind of unity, the union experienced and expressed in Revelation 21 ought to be what we as the people of God are striving for here on earth until the kingdom comes in the fullness of its consummation. John presses at this again and again and again. This is not a minor point with regards to heaven. The union of people of every tongue and tribe and nation. This is a major feature of the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, there's a little debate as to the proper length of a stadia. It's somewhere between 600 and 650 feet. I'll do the math for you. 12,000 stadia is somewhere between 14 and 1,500 miles, which also happens to be the length of the Mediterranean basin from the city of Jerusalem all the way over to Western Europe in Spain. The span that John has just described 
is the length of the world as John knew it, which is another indicator in the book of Revelation that this is not about getting us out of earth and into heaven. This is about getting heaven into earth. The very ground beneath our feet is being redeemed at the second coming of Jesus. Paul would say that the creation itself groans alongside mankind, awaiting the revealing of God's Son. It's not just you and me, flesh and blood, that have been marked by the sin of Adam. The very ground beneath our feet and the air above our heads has been marked by the curse of Adam's sin. But at the coming of Jesus Christ, even the basic elements of this world experience the fullness of redemption. What John is saying is that the whole creation as we know it is redeemed and consecrated and sanctified and changed forever by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, a, a variety of comparisons and contrasts that are being drawn in, in Revelation 21. There is another great city. In Revelation 19, John addresses Babylon, the great prostitute as she's described emblematic of Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, which exists as this fairly tightly confined geographic area on the Italian peninsula. It's still there today, as you well know. Now, that's the capital. That's Babylon. Compared to what we have described here, it's pretty small. John is describing a city that literally delivers on what the propaganda of Babylon has been promising. Peace, safety, security, unity, health, and prosperity. This is what Roman propaganda promises. This is what Babylonian propaganda promises, but it cannot deliver. And by the way, the beast of the 21st century cannot deliver on the promises of her propaganda either. But Jesus always does. And John here features a city that is so massive that it subsumes the Italian peninsula and all of the Roman Empire. You've got this little petty capital city over here. But here we have in the new heaven and the new earth, this city that is bigger than your entire empire. That is one of the points John is making in his description of this 12,000 stadia long city, which is the new Jerusalem, packed full with the people of God of every tribe and tongue and nation of every generation by faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, He measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. If you haven't caught on to this, I'm taking all of these numbers as symbolic, and there's good reason for that. The city's dimensions are 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles tall. And then the city walls are described here as 144 cubits. That's about 75 yards. Now, if you have city walls, which are 75 yards tall, those are big walls. But if your city is 1,400 miles tall, 75-yard high walls are probably not going to do the job. But that's not what John is featuring or picturing or depicting in our passage. This is, yet again, a symbol of perfection. He's taken the 12 tribal heads of Israel and multiplied them by 
the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he demonstrates here that the walls of that city are perfectly adapted for a perfected people of God to provide for us a perfect sense of peace and a perfect sense of security. We've seen the language or imagery of 144 before in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And symbolically in that passage, it comes to represent all of true Israel. We're not dealing there with ethnic Israel. That's not what is in view in that passage. What we're dealing with is true Israel, which is comprised of people of Israelite background, but many of Gentile background who have been grafted into the lineage of Abraham by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have 12, this number of perfection multiplied by 1,000, this symbol of a whole lot, for, a better, for lack of a better description, and all combined to say there is this multitude of 144,000, all of true Israel gathered about the throne of heaven, worshiping the Almighty and the Lamb. The same idea, the same imagery is used again here. And the multiplication of the 12 tribal heads of Israel times the 12 apostles of the Lamb is yet another way John is pressing at the unity that exists among Jew and Gentile. Verse 18, the Bible says, the building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation, jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. Where do these stones come from? Is there any symbolic significance to the selection of these stones? Absolutely there is. You can find the origin for this listing of stones back in the book of Exodus chapter 28 where Moses is given very specific instruction as to how the breast piece of the high priest is to be decorated. The high priest wore certain garb when going into the Holy of Holies in order to perform his high priestly duty and the breast plate or the breast piece he was to wear was to be decorated in a very specific way. Verse 17 of, of Exodus 28 says that you're to place a setting of gemstones on it, four rows of stone. The first row should be a row of carnelian, topaz, and emerald. The second, turquoise, sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, and onyx, and jasper. Verse 21 goes on to say the 12 stones are to correspond to the names of Israel's son. Each stone must be engraved like a seal with one of the names of the 12 tribes. So as we mentioned a moment ago, we have the assignment of these decorations symbolic of Israel placed upon the foundations which stand as representative of the Gentile peoples coming to faith under the ministry of the apostles of the Lamb, but that's not the only place that that listing occurs in the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, the imagery of Exodus 28 is taken up. These precious stones, these various decorations or adornments are listed in an explanation by Isaiah of what the future holds for Israel. It is a promising passage that ends with this crescendo of hope for the people of Israel. 
In Isaiah 54, 11, the Bible says, Poor Jerusalem, storm-tossed and not yet comforted. I will set your stones in black mortar, lay your foundations in sapphire. I'll, I'll make your fortifications of rubies, your gates of sparkling stone, all your walls of precious stones, that all your children will be taught by the Lord. Their prosperity will be great, and you'll be established on a foundation of righteousness. You'll be far from oppression. You will certainly not be afraid. You'll be far from terror. It will certainly not come near you. If anyone attacks you, it is not from me. Whoever attacks will fall before you. Look, I have created the craftsman who blows on the fire and who produces a weapon suitable for its task. And I've created the destroyer to cause havoc. No weapon formed against you will succeed. And you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servant, and their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. So you have this promise from Isaiah using the imagery of Exodus chapter 28 to say that better things are ahead for you. Those precious stones that adorn the breastplate of the high priest. I will take those valuable stones and I'll build a foundation of a city for you in the last days. Now what John seems to do in Revelation 21 is to reference not only the fact that these stones stand emblematically for the 12 tribal heads of Israel, but to point to the promises of God in Isaiah's prophecy to say not only will there be unity between Jew and Gentile, but that heaven is the final yes and amen to the promises of God. What you know now in part through the power of the gospel, you will know there in full as the kingdom itself is consummated. Verse 21 tells us that the 12 gates are 12 pearls, each individual gate made of a single pearl. And the broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. There's another one of those points of contrast. Here is a, a seat, a, a street rather, of everlasting glory. A street of, of pure gold like transparent glass. The pearly gates and the streets of gold are probably the two images of heaven that are best known from Revelation 21. And I don't know that I have ever heard preached or referenced what John seems to be indicating with this street reference in our passage. There is another street in the book of Revelation. Do you remember it? It's been several months since we considered that passage way back in Revelation chapter 11. There, there are two witnesses who hold fast to the gospel. They insist that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And for their efforts, they are cut down and killed. Those two witnesses stand as representatives of the whole church, of the whole body of Christ. They are killed in the street of what we might call Old Jerusalem. And in order to embarrass and to bring further shame to those two witnesses, their dead bodies, their corpses left lying in the street for three and a half days before they are raised again. The idea here is that the world believes that it has extinguish the church, that Christians have been made extinct by sheer force. They have been cut down in the street. And to add 
indignity to indignity. They have been left there in the street to rot away in old Jerusalem. But the street of their shame in old Jerusalem has been transformed in the new Jerusalem and has now become the street of their everlasting glory. Those streets of gold is the reversal of the experience of old Jerusalem and the punishment, persecution, and eventual martyrdom of faithful believers who have stood fast on the truth of the message of the gospel. Verse 22, John says, I didn't see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. There are those who are expecting the rebuilding of a literal, physical temple in Jerusalem in anticipation of the last days. And I am convinced, convicted, and adamant that if that is your expectation, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Jesus makes it abundantly clear throughout his ministry that he is the temple. Tear down this temple and I will build it again in three days. Jesus says again and again and again, Jesus is the temple. In the old covenant, God made his presence manifest, his glory dwelt in the temple, more specifically in the Holy of Holies, more specifically than that, above the Ark of the Covenant. So we have this piece of furniture, for lack of a better expression, with an angel perched atop each end with their wingtips touching one another, spread out abroad over the Ark of the Covenant. What we find in Luke's gospel is Mary and the other women go to the garden grave. Stone rolled away, which I take to be an invitation to come and see. They look inside and there at the table where the dead body of Jesus once lay are the grave clothes folded and neatly put in their place and an angel standing at the head and the foot. This is so often missed because we don't know the Old Testament but what's being signified there is that we don't meet with God in a building anymore. We meet with God in the body of Jesus. This is where we meet him. You want to know where to meet God? We meet him in the body of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, the ark of the covenant was the intersection, the crossroads where heaven met earth where man would commune with God and God would commune with man. But Jesus is now our meeting place. Through Christ, we have access to the Father. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father except through me, that is not just a salvation thing. That means that we have access to God in prayer. That means that we can go to God at any moment, led by the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus. We have access to the Father. Jesus is the temple. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sanctuary. doesn't need one because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. I will tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm open to correction, but I don't believe what John is saying here is that there's no sun or moon in the new heaven or the new earth. I don't even, frankly, take no night to be a literal reference. 
I think what he's saying here is that the glory of God is so piercing that it overwhelms the shining of sun and moon. We turn out all the lights in this room and I strike and light a match. Every person in this room can see that match against the darkness of this room. If we go out in the parking lot, it's 12 o'clock, I strike that match in the midday sun, you may not even see the flame on the head of that matchstick. That's what John is describing in our passage. The glory of God so piercing, so powerful, so profound that we scarcely notice the sun beaming in its brightness. Verse 24 says, The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, wait a minute. We just read a chapter ago that the kings of the earth were destroyed and the nations of the earth were destroyed. What's up? This is typical prophetic hyperbole. This is the way apocalyptic imagery works. Some from among those nations come to the realization that he and he alone is worthy of worship and praise. And so they bring all of the glory and honor otherwise attached to themselves, and they lay it at the feet of the only one deserving. There is no opportunity or, or, or chance or threat or danger that there might be any trespassers. The idea here is that there's safety, there's security. We're well kept and guarded. We are protected in the new Jerusalem. This is behind the idea of, of gates that never close because it will never be night there, no darkness of night in which evil can cloak or hide itself. Just so that we're abundantly clear in verse 27, John says, nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only people in heaven are people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I want to do more with chapter 22, but for the sake of time, let's sort of put a bow on things here. Now I want you to think about a question very honestly. Think, think through this question and how you might answer it. How, how can a person know, how do you know that you will go to heaven? How does a person get to heaven? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you respond to that? Most of the time, outside the church, this is the basic answer I get. You do good things and you go to heaven or you don't do bad things and you go to heaven or in a worst case scenario, you attempt to do more good things than you do bad things in order that those bad things are outweighed and then you get to go to heaven. Now here's the follow-up. What makes your opinion about how to get to heaven, the standard by which all others are judged. What makes your opinion on how to get to heaven valid compared to that of someone else? What I'm pressing at here is this idea that, that is prevailing now in our culture where everyone feels as though they're privileged to their own truth and their own reality. 
even where there might be agreement that if you do good, you go to heaven, you do bad, you go to hell or something along those lines. How do you define good or bad? And what makes your definition of good any better than someone else's definition of good? And what makes your definition of bad any better than someone else's definition of bad? See, I'm finding that when engaging in this level of conversation, people are really detached from reality. We have our own self-styled, individualized ideas about how it is that we get to heaven. And, and then as soon as, as soon as you begin to insert conversation about the Bible, there's pushback. But where does the very notion of heaven come from? In our culture, it comes from the Bible. And so there's a plucking, there's a picking and a choosing of the elements we find satisfactory and a complete dismissal of those that don't suit our taste, our fancy, or this pseudo-truth that we've contrived for ourselves in this pseudo-reality that frankly does not exist. What we need is a source of authority external to ourselves that provides guidance and instruction as to how a person gets to heaven. I would tell you, you find that in the Bible. Well, who says that the Bible is any better than any other holy book? Why wouldn't we take the Koran or Midrash or Talmudic teachings? Why wouldn't we take Hinduism or Buddhism and their books of, of wisdom? Why would we prefer the Bible over some other source of instruction with regards to how to get to heaven. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus affirmed the Bible as true. Well, why in the world would Jesus bear greater authority or credibility than any of those names we've mentioned just now? Why is Jesus of greater importance than Muhammad or Buddha or Abraham even as the father of the Jews? Why would we listen to Jesus as opposed to listening to another major world religious leader. I'll tell you why. Because of the group, only Jesus was dead and buried for three days and rose again. And with resurrection comes a measure of authority that is not enjoyed by any world religious leader. Christ and Christ alone was dead, buried, and raised again on the third day. There must be a source of authority external to ourselves, which becomes the measure by which we are judged. You are free on some level to your own truth and your own reality, but regardless of who you are, what you feel, believe, or where you come from, if you lay down in McInvale Road in front of an 18-wheeler, the fire department will come and pick you up with spoons. That's a truth that is rooted in reality. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that the Bible is not about propping us up or providing for us a crutch. The Bible is not good for us individually and that it provides or affords us with some coping mechanism. What I'm expressing to you this morning is a truth that is rooted in reality. That there is one way to heaven and his name is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And no man may come to the Father except through Jesus. Yes. A truth deeply rooted, based in reality.
Now, here's what I'll ask you in closing. Do you know him? Do you love Jesus more than you love your sin? Do you love Jesus more than your comfort, your affluence, your popularity? I mean, do you really love him? Is he the pearl of great price in your life? Would you sell it all just to know Christ in his fullness? Is he the treasure of your heart? Has there been a moment in time in your life when you came to the fountain of the water of life and drank deeply by faith and repentance? There's this invitation that looms over these closing chapters of Revelation that we would not succumb to the propaganda of the day, nor would we shrink back from the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that by faithful perseverance, we might know Christ in his fullness. Today, dear brother, today, not after summer, when the schedule is back to normal, but today is the day of salvation. You may know him today. You can have, on the basis of truth rooted in reality, assurance of your eternal destiny. And it really doesn't take all that much insight. Do you know what I knew the day God saved me from my sin? I knew that he was good. I was bad. I was bound for hell, but I wanted heaven and only Jesus could change my destiny. That is the sum total of what I knew the day I came to faith. You want to know how I prayed when God saved me? God helped me. Three words. And do you know that he was faithful to answer that prayer? And dear friend, he'll do the same for you. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for this source of authority external to ourselves, the truth rooted in reality. And God, I pray that the words of Revelation 21 would land with weight in the hearts of those who are here, that unbelievers might believe, that we would be shaken from the slumber of self-delusion and deception to see the grace afforded us through the shed blood of Jesus. I pray, God, that the church would be renewed and encouraged in its commitment to Jesus, that we would press on and persevere in spite of the hardships and difficulties which may present themselves, God, because we know what awaits us in the end. God, I pray that you would save the lost, sanctify the sinner, and build your kingdom, and much glory and praise and honor be drawn to Christ and to Christ alone. And I ask it in the power of his name. Amen.